The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good to see you all. Glad you're here. It's nice to sit inside, huh? And it's nice that you're outside as well. We love you. Glad you're here. Our text today, Matthew chapter 11. If some of you are wondering, well, why aren't we in Revelation? We're going to take a couple weeks of a break from our study through Revelation over Easter because we want to have a look at the heart of Jesus Christ for his people. We're going to be focusing in on texts that talk about Jesus' heart for his people. So we're going to begin that this morning, Matthew chapter 11. And I am both super excited about this text and a little intimidated by it. It's one of those places that is so precious in Scripture, and you feel like even after you've done your best with it, you, you didn't quite grab all the sweetness that was in there. So we'll pray for God's help. But uh, Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. So that's Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. Let's hear the Word of God. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, these are some of the sweetest words we could ever imagine, but we need your help. Lord, please send us the Holy Spirit to open us up to what you're saying in this word, and also open us up to ourselves. Let us see ourselves and our inclinations towards you clearly, and Lord, draw us to you, draw us to yourself because of your beauty, because of your sweetness, because of who you are, the invitation that you give. Please help me now, Lord. Give me the Holy Spirit. Help me to teach this faithfully and clearly, and let it be a better message than I could ever preach on my own in each heart and each mind. Lord, you speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? What do you think as I ask you that question? Some of you might wonder, what what does that even mean? Um, Do you know Jesus? You could hear that question like this, do you know about Jesus? In that case, the question would ask, have you considered the claims, these eyewitness claims about who Jesus is? Have you watched his life from these gospels? Have you heard him teach Have you seen him die? Have you encountered him risen? Do do you know about Jesus? That's an incredibly important question. We want you to know about him. But it's not quite what I mean here. Do you know Jesus? That question does have a relational aspect, doesn't it? Are you and Jesus personally introduced? Are you on friendly terms with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Is there open communication between you and Jesus? Some might say, no, wait, are you telling me it's possible to have a relationship with someone born 2,000 years ago that I can't see? What would you say? Yeah, (laughs) that's actually the heart of Christianity right there. In Christianity, we're not coming ultimately to a set of facts or a list of rules. No, through the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we come to a person, the person who is alive today. Do you know Jesus? It's such an important question. Do you know it's horribly easy to know all about Jesus and not know him at all? 
Terrifyingly, this is what Jesus will say to some when he returns. Depart from me, he'll say. I never, what? I never knew you. Do you know Jesus? There's a third way to look at this question as well. Let me, let me put it like this. Is there somebody in your life, a family member or a friend, who just knows you best? So maybe sometimes they can finish your thought. They, they know what you're thinking. They, that person knows what makes you tick. That person knows what you care about, what you love, your passions. We could say that person knows your heart right? You've shared the deeper parts of yourself with that person. You've shared your time, your experience, your communication. You can say that person knows you. They uniquely, in a way, know who you are. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you know what he's really like? This is what's so amazing about our text this morning. It's so amazing. In this text, These are Jesus' own words recorded for for us by Matthew that let us in on his very heart. That's a big deal. You know, the heart in biblical thinking is the core of who someone is, the way they truly are, the way they're inclined, what they love, who they are. And Jesus is going to tell you in his own words of his very heart. He tells us what he's like way down deep. And this just means everything for how we can respond to him and know him better. So I want to try to see four things with you this morning from these verses. Number one, the identity of Jesus. We're reminded of just who he is in this passage. Number two, the invitation of Jesus. Jesus gives the greatest invitation ever. Number three, the heart of Jesus according to his own words. And then number four, our response. Our response. How can we respond? So his identity, his invitation, his heart, our response. Let's dive in. As we begin this text here in Matthew 11, it actually starts with a prayer. I want you to just observe how Jesus talks, what he's talking about. Verse 25, he declares, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Reveal them to little children. So there's three things we need to unpack here, right? The Father has hidden these things. So we have to, we have to what are those things? What are these things? Um, he's hidden them from the wise and understanding. Who are those people? And he's revealed these things to little children. So we gotta, we got to unpack these three ideas, these things, wise understanding, little children. Well, we learn what these things are in the immediate context of this chapter. Look at Matthew 11, just above 11.20, Matthew 11.20. There it says, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. So what are the these things? These things are the message of the mighty works. It's all this evidence about who Jesus is. At this point in Matthew, he's been going through all these towns, sometimes healing entire villages. Can you imagine? Every sickness gone. He's teaching with power and authority. He's fulfilling all these prophecies of the scriptures. It's this cumulative evidence of who Jesus is. And it's right in front of their faces. Nobody can deny these things. And yet, somehow these things that are obvious are hidden. In what way were they hidden? I mean, everyone all around knew about Jesus. They knew what he was doing. But did you see the response of these cities? All these mighty works had been done, and still they would not what? They wouldn't turn to him. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't repent. I mean, if you, sometimes people say, Lord, if I just saw some miracles, you know, if I just saw you come, if I just heard you speak, I believe, I'd turn. 
And the Bible asks, would you, really? There's a lot of people who saw and would not turn. You know, it's so interesting. Jesus doesn't say, man, I failed. I tried. I tried to win him over, and I failed. No, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things. They saw, but they didn't see. What was their problem? Do you remember the group? Who did he hide it from? Did you see that? The wise and understanding. That is not about whether or not you went to college. Okay? This is about your view of yourself in relationship to Jesus. If you see yourself as, oh, I'm wise and I'm understanding, I've got it. I don't need him. I figured it out. I'm all good. I can run my own life in my own way. I have the wisdom I need. I have the strength I need. You know, if you believe that, you won't repent. (laughs) You won't turn. And so we see here that these words have the idea of judgment. The wise and the understanding are people full of stubborn, prideful rebellion against God. They assert they're fine on their own without Christ. And it brings judgment. It's as if God says, oh, you don't want to respond to the evidence that you see? Fine, you won't be able to. Fine. You won't see, truly see what's actually there. And it'll end up in judgment. Judgment on rebellious unbelief. It reminds us, doesn't it? We need to be very careful with what we do about the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus says this a lot in his parables, right? Pay attention to how you hear. This is a responsibility for, especially for people who go to church and listen to the Bible. Because the words are coming. They're going through your eardrums. Some of those ideas, hopefully, are getting into your brain. What are you doing with them? What are you doing with Jesus? So there's an aspect of judgment in this prayer. There's also this beautiful picture of grace. Jesus praises his Father that his Father has revealed these things. To who? Did you see who it was? Little children. Let me just tell you, that's not about how old you are. It's not about how old you are. Little children is about sincerity and acknowledging your need for Jesus. Jesus says in another place, if you don't come to me like a child, you, you can't come. And uh, I've had five children, and, and I know what this childlike thing is. Some people think, oh, it's innocence, you know. Don't you hope it's not innocence? Can you imagine if Jesus' invitation to you was, come to me when you're innocent? Well, that's the end of that. No, it's not innocent. You, you know what my, especially those, uh, you know, four to six years old kind of, you know what they come to me with? Need. Constant, absolute need. There are needs to be met. There are emotions to be helped. There's guidance to be given. There's provision, protection, even fun, even love, comfort, need. And you know, it's amazing. My little Zeke comes to me fully assuming that I'm going to be happy and strong to meet all of his needs. We learn something there, don't we? The Father reveals these things to little children. It's when you finally go, you know what? I'm not wise and understanding. I'm not a good person. I haven't figured out the meaning of life. I should not be my own authority. I am alone and and empty. I need, I need Jesus. I need him. And if you realize that, if you realize your need, you know why? The Father through the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. There's something beautiful here. If you say, I'm too needy for God to love me. Oh, don't you realize? The fact you realize you need Jesus is because God loves you. That's encouraging, isn't it? I praise you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise understanding that you reveal them to little children. This is for God's glory. Jesus praises the Father for his sovereignty in salvation. Now look what he says in verse 27. 
All these things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. These are amazing claims. These are amazing, amazing claims. There Jesus is in this moment, truly, obviously, fully human. He ate, he drank, he slept. He's not like glowing as he walks about. He's human. And yet he says he uniquely and exclusively is the very eternal son of God known by the Father. He's the one, only the Father truly knows who he is. And he's the one, only he truly knows the Father. And in fact, the Father has handed over all things to him. You know, you might hear sometime in like a junior college religion class that Jesus never claimed to be God. I will wonder if that professor ever read the New Testament. Some of them have, and they still claim it. It's true, Jesus never said, I am God, in the sense that he's some new God, or a replacement of Yahweh of Israel. No, no, no. But he says continually, I am one with that God. He says explicitly, I am the eternal son of that God. I am equal in divinity to that God. Later in this passage, he's going to quote a text from Jeremiah. And in the text in Jeremiah, the things are, are ref- that are happening are referring to, this is what God does, and Jesus will just say, that, that, and I'm doing it. He does this all through the text. He's the eternal son of God. And you see here, he's the judge who will come and judge ultimately, eternally. We saw that last week in Revelation, didn't we? Violently. But he's also, as we see here, the the one through whom the grace of God is realized. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus alone is the ultimate mediator of God's grace. Jesus alone can reveal the Father to you so you can know God as your Father. Jesus alone can enable you to have fellowship with the Holy Creator God. If you want to have God as your Father, only Jesus can bring you. Who is he that he can say this? Do you see his identity? Who is this? He's the Christ. He's the eternal Son of God, God's promised King. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Scriptures. He's the only one who can bring salvation and satisfaction. Do you see who he is? I mean, we say, yeah, I see what he's saying, but do you see who he is? I mean, as I look at this, I... I sort of see how marvelous is Jesus Christ, how grand is Jesus Christ, how glorious, how awesome is he. Words fail us, but he's the eternal son of God in the flesh, the only way to know the Father. That's who Jesus is. So now in light of the power of who he is, I want you to feel his invitation. Have you ever had somebody you looked up to in life somehow and then maybe they invited you over and you thought, whoa. Or there's people, you know, they're big and powerful and important and they'll never invite me. Who am I? You know, an invitation can be an amazing thing. Somebody invites you in. Somebody invites you over. There's a, there's a welcome, a willingness to be connected. And the more we get a view of who Jesus is, the more this invitation we're going to listen to is just unbelievable. Listen to what the eternal Son of God says, the only one who knows the Father, the only one one through whom all things are given. Listen to what he says, verse 28. Come, come. To what? Come to me. All who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
blows me away. First of all, come to me. Come to me. What do you think of Christianity? What is it? What do your friends think of Christianity? What is it? A lot of people seem to think that Christianity is just a list of moralistic rules to help you be a good person. And so the kind attitude towards that would be like, oh, that's great if it's true for you, if it helps you, you know, find truth and goodness. That's great, true for you, that's fine. But it's nothing anyone needs. Or the cynical attitude would be, this is just a religious setup to help you feel superior and better than other people, right? Comes across that way sometimes. Either way, we don't need this. The point is the person Come to, what did Jesus say? Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. And this is what makes Christianity both so terribly frightening and so wonderfully beautiful. Because if you come to Jesus, it's personal. He's going to grab you. All that you are, he wants it. Come to me. A list of rules would be safer. I could control that a little. Come to me, he says. But the beauty of it is, doesn't your heart maybe say, really? Me? I could come to you? Come to me, Jesus says. The point is the person. And now listen to this qualifier. Okay, come to me, Jesus says. Then he gives a qualifier. Who is it that can come to Jesus? Let's pretend like we hadn't just read this text. How does your heart usually feel? If there was an informal poll and it was like, you can come to Jesus if, if you're, what do you imagine? What do people assume that Jesus would say? Um, come to me, all those who are a little bit better than others. Uh, come to me after you fix yourself up a little bit. That one's common. Come to me after you fix yourself up a little bit. After you figure some things out, get your thing going on in church, then you can come to me. Or um, come to me, all those of you who don't have those train wreck things in your past. If you skipped that part, you can come to me. Or uh, come to me, all of those of you that have radical, powerful faith. You can come to me. Come to me if you've uh, figured out all the theological inner workings. Those people can come to me. All those things are not what Jesus said. Did you hear what he said? What's the qualifier that, that makes you fit to come to him? Here's how you know you can come. All those who what? Labor and are heavy laden. These words mean you're in need. They mean you need help. They mean the work was too hard and the burden is too great. These are the people who can't quite make it. They need And we see here, Jesus is drawn towards those who need. He's attracted to them. He invites them. By the way, right, in context, this is nearly synonymous with little children, isn't it? It's nearly synonymous. Things were revealed to the little children What's revealed? You labor and you're heavy laden and you need. What do these words mean? Labor means weary, tired, exhausted with toil or burdens or grief. Jesus is drawn to you. Heavy laden, it's overloaded. It's too much to bear. When we think it's too much for me to bear. You, you know what happens. You know what happens in, in I've been a pastor long enough. I've seen my own heart. You know what happens when we're really sad, we're discouraged, we think we can't quite make it. You know what we do? We hide. That's why some of you aren't here even today. 
you're hiding because you feel broken because you feel like you can't make it. We hide from the local church and sometimes we even in our hearts kind of hide from Jesus. That's backwards. Backwards. It's backwards. When you need him most, he is most inclined to you. He's drawn to meet your need. And we should be drawn to come near to him and to one another in the context of need. Come needy. What do you think about that invitation? Look at who this is. Look at his invitation. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. Some of you are thinking you're actually a little, you're moved by this. I'm moved by this passage because I'm thinking, that's me. Really, I could come? Others might be thinking, oh, I'm strong and in control. See, I was right. Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. I'm fine on my own. And my question is, really? Really? Jesus is showing all of us, if we're humble enough to see it, that we're each under a yoke. Because he said, take my yoke. So what he's saying is, I've got a trade for you. you. You want this trade. I've got a trade for you. Trade that yoke you're under right now. Trade that for mine. He's going to try to motivate you to make that trade. But he is telling you, you're under a yoke. And what's that mean? Well, a yoke is a farming tool, right? Wooden bar probably that binds these two oxen together. They're connected. They are hitched up. They are going the same direction. And I'm told, evidently, one leads and the other follows. So if you're hitched to something, you're following that thing, and that's where you're going. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to you about your heart? Your heart, your life, you're hitched to something. You are following it. It's taking you a certain direction. Determines your future, your satisfaction. What does this yoke idea signify? The yoke and the burden is about what your heart is tied to for your very significance. What are you tied to that will make you enough? In the New Testament context, this idea of the yoke was often about striving to be right with God by keeping the law. Jesus uses these very words. Look at Luke eleven forty six. Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also. You load people with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. It's the same language. Uh, it's this idea of, hey, if you want to be right with God, the way to do it is you've got to keep all these traditions and laws and stipulations. If you do that good enough, then you'll be accepted. It's basically the world's religion, 101. Be good enough to be accepted. Tie yourself to that yoke. It's a burden. Jesus said, if you're, if you're laboring under the religiosity condemnation of knowing you're not enough, come to me. The apostle said the same thing in the book of Acts, Acts 15, 10. Um, they said, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? They were arguing with people who said, Jesus plus Mosaic law. And the apostle said, no, that would be a yoke and a burden. We're going to Jesus. Here's the reality. Big picture and small picture, we yoke ourselves to some standard that will ultimately break us. Can you see yours? What are you tempted to yoke yourself to? This is how you know you're good enough. This is how you know. Some people yoke themselves to their career, being successful, owned by it. For others, it's family and being great parents. You ever met somebody crushed? by uh, difficulties with their children. It's painful. If your identity's yoked to that, weary, laboring, heavy laden. For others, it's being in love, always having to have a romantic relationship occurring in order to be someone. 
Could be anything, couldn't it? Status with friends. Sometimes it's partying. Sometimes it could even be fighting injustice, but you, you yoke yourself to this, and this standard is what makes me enough, and I'm, I'm following it. I'm tied to it. Ultimately, the yoke Jesus wants us to trade off is the yoke of our sin. It's not just sins. Sin. The inclination against God and his ways. The inclination to be autonomous, to define ourselves. Honestly, we've each been that stubbornly prideful person who rebels against God and replaces his work with our own. We've been the wise and understanding who will rule ourselves and be our own gods. And that refusal to rely on the grace of God leaves us under his judgment and by our own effort we cannot escape it. Have you felt the heavy burden of realizing you're trapped in sin and its power and condemnation and you cannot save yourself? Do you see the burden of the yoke you tend to tie yourself to? Here again, Jesus' invitation. What does he say? Come to me. Take my yoke instead. Hitch up to me. Do you hear Jesus' invitation? When he says, take my yoke, he's saying, I am willing to be forever connected to you, forever associated with you. I am willing to ever have you here by my side, carrying the weight and offering the direction for you. I will be your significance, your help, your strength. Let it be me, Jesus says. Oh my gosh. The eternal son of God is saying that to you. It's amazing. He's drawn, inclined, desires to hitch himself to weary, burdened, broken people. Just come. Just come. Now we want to see Jesus' heart in his own words. Because here he's, he's kind of wooing us to come. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's invited us to come, and, and, we're, and if you're still a little hesitant, you're like, ah, this other yoke, ah. And he said, well, let me tell you what, I am, what I'm like. Let me tell you my heart. Now pretend you've never read this passage. Pretend you, just didn't, you didn't just hear it. If you had to guess two words Jesus would use to describe of his heart towards you, what would you guess? I should have done a poll in the beginning. If you were honest, how many of you would pick frustrated and disappointed? How about highly exalted and too busy for someone like you? Or maybe if he was really honest, he'd be like, I'm kind of apathetic and distant toward you. Or uh, how about I'm watching and I'm condemning? I see that. What would be the two words that describe his heart towards those who will come? These words are unbelievable. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I am gentle. And I am lowly in heart. My core inclination towards my people all the time is gentle and lowly. One commentator said, these words are self-authenticating. What that means is it's the kind of words where you read that and go, yeah, nobody made this up. This is honestly from God. That's what that commentator thought. That's what many have said. Because there's no human religion like this. Nobody making God up would write these words about the heart of God. It's too, it's too what? It's too humble. It's too kind. It's too accessible. And for Jesus to say these words right after saying, no one knows the Father except me. And then he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. There is no one like Jesus. 
What do these words mean? The Greek word translated gentle here occurs only three other times in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you each one of them. First, 1 Peter 3, 4, Peter's encouragement to Christian wives, he says, nurture the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's 1 Peter. Christian, so think of the godliest, kindest moment of the godliest, kindest Christian wife. This imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit, so gentle and welcoming and understanding. Why can Christian wives be ever like that? It's because Jesus is like that in heart. Did you know this? Second place it's used, uh, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Meek, same thing as gentle. It's strength, just soft and under control. Why can God's people be meek people, gentle people? Why is gentleness the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Why? Because Jesus is gentle in heart. Third one. It's Palm Sunday. You, if any of you were wondering, how does this text connect to Palm Sunday? I'm going to tell you right now. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a conquering king. You remember what, it, what kind of vehicle he chose? It was not the big war steed of a general. He rode a donkey. It was a picture of accessibility peace and gentleness. I'll give you the quote from the prophet, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. What was that first word? Rejoice. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus' inclination towards his people is humble gentleness. And if you see that, you know what it's going to draw out of your heart. You're going to rejoice. Oh, this king. Oh, this king. It will make you happy to see how gentle the heart of your king is. Jesus says, my heart is gentle. He also says his heart is lowly. Here's the word. You just, no one would guess this. Lowly? The eternal son of God is lowly in heart. In Romans 12, 16, Christians are commanded to associate with the lowly. And so the lowly, I mean, who is that? Who are the lowly? You wouldn't want to say it, but they, they feel like the losers. They feel like the, those people. They don't look like they have it all together. They don't seem like they fit in. They, they, they seem messed up a little, broken a little. Paul, the apostle, says, you make sure in the church you associate with those people, associate with the lowly, because Jesus says, I am lowly in heart. What does that mean? It means he loves to be accessible and welcoming to the weak. So easy for anyone to come to him, no matter their mess. He's lowly in heart. I mean, for some people I've met, I, I feel like if they hadn't read this verse and I said, Jesus is lowly in heart, they'd be like, heretic. He's too exalted for that. Can we let him use his own words about himself? He is lowly in heart. Dane Ortland says, no one in history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. He touches the leper. He's lowly in heart. I think our sinfulness kind of gives us a spiritual handicap. Maybe you can relate. Uh, in my sin, I often think my sin's not that bad. And I don't really deserve that kind of judgment. You know, there's a psalm that says, the fool says in his heart, my sin can't be known and be hated. It's foolishness, right? Especially Revelation, even the verses right before this one, we've seen, no, Jesus will seriously bring the reign of God's wrath on the prideful and unrepentant, right? Not denying that at all. But we don't see the reality of this 
incredible line that is drawn when we trust Christ, his heart towards us is not condemning wrath. It is welcome, it is gentleness, it is lowliness. And just like my sinfulness handicaps me to where I can't take my sin seriously enough, I also can't take his love seriously enough. I should get an amen from that. Anybody with me on that? Don't really let myself taste his love. I've got all these reasons why I'm not fit to be loved by him like that. And Jesus says, hey, will you just remember the qualifications? Are you, labor? Are you laboring? Are you heavy laden? Do you need me? Yes. Come on. That's all. Dane Ortland again says, for the penitent, Jesus' heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts uh, and anxieties and failures. His, for lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. He's trying to woo us to come to him, to trade the yoke. And then he says, did you, here's, here's the last in, you know, aspect of this invitation. He says his yoke is easy. Did you see that? His yoke is easy. This Greek word behind easy here means good or especially kind. That's an ironic idea, isn't it? A kind yoke. Ephesians 4.32, same word. How should Christians treat one another? Well, be kind to one another. What's that next word? Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Why should we strive to be that way for one another? Because Jesus is that way to us. His yoke even is kind. Here's another quote from Ortland. Orland talks about how we tend to avoid deep fellowship with Jesus due to our muted understanding of his heart. We won't let ourselves believe this kind of gentle lowliness towards us. Ortland says, what helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. Who is Jesus? The eternal son of God, the only way to know the Father. What's his invitation? Come to me. What's his heart? He's gentle and lowly in heart. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Gosh, where else would you rather be? Our response. Our response. Well, obviously, it's in the verb come. And it's just a picture of faith. It's a picture of faith. It's a picture of the first kind of faith when you convert and you become a Christian. Come to Jesus. Repent. Turn from your self-ownership. Turn from your other yoke. Trust yourself to Jesus. Come. But it's also the every moment inclination of a Christian's heart. That's where we want to be. Always coming. To Jesus. And then he says, Learn from me. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So again, it's a picture of what? How would you describe it? Coming near to Jesus. Like leaning up under the yoke he's providing. Like sit even up right there. Learn from him, which means you're going to follow him. Back to the idea of the oxen. He's leading. You're learning from him. You want to stay like right there in that spot. Learn from him. And what's Jesus' promise? I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. What's rest? This peaceful joy and satisfaction can breathe again. You ever been backpacking? And, oh, it's getting heavy, and you take that thing off, and you're like, ah. 
If you read Pilgrim's Progress, that was John Bunyan's illustration of taking off this heavy burden, this thing you couldn't make anymore. You just take, you take that off, you give that to him. His, his yoke is easy. You find rest for your souls. So listen, learn to follow. It's a picture of discipleship. Commit yourself to Christ. Follow him and learn to find your rest as you do so. Two ideas and we'll finish. First of all, learn from him and find your rest in your justification. This starts with the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect life, right? Not one sin. Not one He fulfilled the standard of all perfection. And if you will come to him in faith, guess what he gives you? This is the promise of the gospel. He will give you the standing of his perfect righteousness freely as a gift. Talk about rest for your souls. Are you ashamed? Are you guilty? Are you trying to atone for something, make up for something, and you realize you can't, you're not good enough, you've never been good enough, and those are your best days? How much more your worst days, and you're lost in this condemnation? Look to Christ. He lived the perfect life. He gives that to you freely as a gift. That is rest. Rest in that. Second, he died on the cross for your sins. He took upon himself, honestly, every ounce of justice that you deserve. It's already poured out. It's already empty. He paid for it on the cross. Trust him with that. Take that burden off knowing in Christ you're forgiven. You're made right with the Father. That work was vindicated, the work he did for you, in the very resurrection, and God says, yes, good, enough. It's yours. Rest in your justification. Rest in what Christ has done for you. Also, rest in your sanctification. And it's a church word. What do we mean by sanctification? It's the, it's the, it's the path of the Christian life, right? It's, it's walking this life to be like Jesus more and more and glorify him in how you live. It's growing to be like Christ. And listen, I've said this before, but is the Christian life like this? You come to Jesus once. He's like, here, okay, I'll forgive you. Now you're on your own. We're watching. Good luck. Never make it. When do we come to Jesus? Yeah, there's a come to Jesus probably in the conversion. Come, capital C, come to Jesus. And then what do you keep doing after that? (laughs) You keep coming. You keep coming to Jesus forever, for all things. Come to me. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, do you you realize what he's inviting you to come with? If apart from him you can do nothing, that means he's inviting you to come to him with everything. Every need. Every need, every power for obedience, every comfort in suffering, every perspective in times of difficulty or grief, come to him and remember his heart. What's his heart towards you? Gentle and lowly. You'll find rest. I want to finish with a quote from Thomas Goodwin. He's a Puritan writer. The best theologians are usually people who have been dead for a couple hundred years. Um, It's a longer quote. Some of it's Puritan language. They were better with words than we are. And uh, honestly, when I read them, sometimes I feel too stupid to get through it. But hear his words. People are apt to have difficult ideas of Christ. But he tells them his disposition there, and that's our text today, that's what he's talking about. He tells them his disposition there by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he, Jesus, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he. I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. So says Christ, injuries and unkindnesses do not so work upon me as to make me irreconcilable. It is my nature to forgive. 
he continues, Yes, but we may think he being the Son of God and heir of heaven, and especially being now filled with glory and sitting at God's right hand, he may now despise the lowliness of us here below, though not out of anger, yet out of that height of his greatness and distance that he has advanced unto, and that we are too mean for him to marry or be familiar with. No, says Christ. I am lowly also, willing to bestow my love and favor upon the poorest and meanest who come to me. For those who come to him, it is his temper, his disposition, his nature to be gracious, which nature he can never lay aside. Do you know Jesus? Are you of the wise and understanding? Are you a little child? See his deeds, see his heart. Come to him maybe for the first time in conversion. Come to him today. Come to him for the millionth time in following him. See your needs, see his heart. Come to Jesus. Find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that these words would ring in our minds and our hearts. I pray that they would be sweet to us. I pray that, the, that we would move towards you. I pray for each person listening to these words that your spirit would guide them in what it means to come and what it means to learn from you, commit to you, and what it means to draw near to you, to rely on you. And they would hear and believe your words about your heart towards them. They would find joy. They would find rest. We thank you, Lord, for who you are better than we could ever invent or imagine. We love you. We want to know you. We want to wear that yoke all our days. Uh, Enable us to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com folfcrc.com